let you introduce us. All right, hello, welcome to the Mongols Podcast. This is Sam YJ Morgenstern, otherwise known as Janusz Janlich. Happy New Year. And here we have the best guest on the Mongols Podcast, the wonderful, amazing Jack Wilson. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me back on again, Janusz. It's been a while. A happy 2021 to yourself, your family, and everyone uh, listening. <laughs> yeah, it's so far um, not too bad. We haven't exactly had any uh, new disasters yet. <laughs> well, it'll be saving a good one, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, let's not jinx it, eh? Indeed. So, anyways, as uh, many might know, uh, Jack Meister is uh, in the process of writing a thesis for his uh, graduate program uh, talking about the notable uh, Nogai Han of the Ulus Jochi, otherwise known as the Golden Horde. <laughs> so, anyways, I decided to invite him on here for a nice, uh, pretty decently long interview. <laughs> um, so, just as kind of the first question, could you, like, uh, give us a rundown slash short version of who Nogai Han is? I certainly can. Uh, so, Nogai uh, was the Mongol commander in the south southeastern Europe from approximately 1267 until his death in 1300. Uh, he was a descendant of Chinggis Khan via his first son, Jochi, uh, and he fought with, uh, he first shows up in the sources fighting alongside Berka Khan in the war against Hulagu over the, uh, the pastures of Azerbaijan in the 1260s. Uh, he seems to have emerged early as a uh, companion of Berka, likely converted to Islam in a similar time to him. Uh, he leads armies for Berka. Uh, Nogai's father, Totar, is actually one of the Jochid princes Hulugu kills sometime after the sack of Baghdad. So it's quite likely that Nogai was given command of an army as sort of a means to uh, avenge his father, so to speak. After the end of that conflict, Nogai uh, goes to the western end of the Golden Horde. So uh, the, the Bruja area, sort of what's now modern Romania, uh, western Ukraine, sort of along the Black Sea coast there in that uh, sort of pasture land. So he, he ends up there about 1267, most likely. And he essentially spends the rest of the 13th century there and becomes the most dominant lord in that region. Uh, he interferes in politics in the Bulgarian Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary and Poland and the Rus principalities. He supplies troops that even go up into Lithuania, and he's most famous for his role in the Golden Horde. Uh, and it is that uh, role in the Golden Horde that he plays in the 13th century that my thesis will be looking at. Uh, what ultimately ends up happening is no guy. Well, what he's most famous for, I guess, is the uh, image as a kingmaker. Uh, appointing and deposing Khans at will before he eventually uh, bites off more than he can chew and is killed in a civil war against his final protege, Tokta Khan, uh, and is killed in about 1299, 1300. Uh, his sons hold on for a couple more years. One son, uh, Cheka, I think it is, he actually sits on the throne of Bulgaria for like a year or two before his own demise. And it takes until about 1305, I think, for the last of the Nogayids to finally be ran off the scene. 
Uh, and he's sort of sometimes portrayed as sort of the first in the line of king makers or con makers of the Golden Horde, and it's compared to Mamai in the late 14th century, uh, 1360 to 1380. He's he's a general defeated at uh, the Battle of Kulikovo in 1380 against uh, Dmitry Donskoy, and then killed by uh, Tokhtamish the next year or the year after. Uh, and then, of course, Edegu was sort of the last con maker uh, appointed by Tamer uh, after his devastating invasions of the Golden Horde in the 1390s. So that's a very brief rundown on Nogai and his uh, significance. So Joshit Prince, kingmaker, influential for about a 40-year period, killed in civil war after fighting with the uh, Joshit Khan. I guess the bad symptoms of being a Genghis male, am I right? <laughs> it's bound to happen. Yep. So, as part of the second question, uh, what sort of political context in the uh, Golden Horde gives rise to the power of uh, Nogai Han? It's... Well, now here's what's interesting about Nogai. So, what my thesis is actually focusing on is... Essentially, there is a contrast in the depiction in the popular scholar or the modern scholarship and the primary sources. In the modern scholarship, it is very, very popular to have Nogai essentially totally independent as soon as he shows up in the Western Steppe at the end of the 1260s. I do not believe that this is what is actually in the primary sources, at least so far as once I've been able to read uh, so far. So firstly, there has been mentioned before that Nogai like grabbed this area in the Western steppe to that he, and the aftermath after Berka's death in 1266, that Nogai went over and was sort of taking land for himself. This is not the case. It is explicitly mentioned by sources like, uh, Pachimeras, a contemporary Byzantine author or historian, who says that Nogai was actually appointed here by Berka's successor, Menke Tamar, which might have even have been confirmed by Hublai Khan himself. Uh, so Nogai is, he is appointed to the Western Steppe. And it seems for the first 10 years or so, he is just completely subservient. He is carrying out the will of the Khan. What begins to change, though, is after the death of Menke Tamer in 1280, maybe 1282. There's some discrepancy uh, there. Nogai had been by that point, the, he was the chief official and intermediary between the Golden Horde and Europe. Uh, and he was already uh, meddling in affairs with the local kingdoms there, especially Bulgaria but also the Byzantine Empire. He marries a daughter of the Byzantine Emperor, Michael VIII. So he's been building up sort of these local contacts for decades. But what happens with Menka Tamer's death in 1280 is that the chief figure who had total oversight or control over Nogai is removed from the picture. And Menka Tamer's successors aren't able to uh, exert the same influence over Nogai. Now, I don't think Nogai was 
actively trying to become independent, but more of, he was more concerned with his own local autonomy. And this is a local autonomy he continues to build up for the rest of his uh, career. Uh, the one thing to consider is if this is sort of an intentional nature of the Jochid state, however. Uh, I'm sure you are aware of the uh, debates around the Blue Horde and the White Horde uh, sort of thing, the, the two halves of the Jochid Ulus. Mm -hmm. So for those listening unawares is... It's unclear which is which in the sources because the Rus sources and the Persian sources sort of differ on calling which side's the Blue Horde, which side's the White Horde. Uh, but essentially, there seems to have been two halves of the Golden Horde. Uh, one half ruled by the descendants of Batu, mm -hmm. the Golden Horde, and then another half ruled by the descendants of Jochi's oldest son, Orda, uh, the Blue Horde or the White Horde. Uh, and if one's if one's the white horde, then we call the other half the blue horde, and it's it's kind of a mess. Uh, but there is it could be that we we shouldn't be thinking of the golden horde as a centralized state where any sort of uh, efforts at autonomy by any of the local governors is just steps to independence. But rather, that is how it's designed. I, the scale of the Golden Horde is immense. It is impossible for the Khan and Sarai to actually be exerting uh, full centralized power over the vastness of the uh, steppe lands that the Horde entails. So uh, where Nogai is set up, he is at that time, that is basically the periphery of the empire. The, the actual main concern of the of the Horde Khans is the steppe itself and the trade routes through the Caucasus, uh, Central Asia, Khorizm, and the Black Sea coastline. The Khan and Sarai isn't really concerned over what happens in Bulgaria, so no guys basically left free reign to there. So essentially, the short answer is no guy starts to grow in power because he's basically out of the Khan's sight, more or less or at least not in an area where the Khan is very concerned what he gets up to, until he's so well entrenched that it is a concern. That's actually a very uh, interesting uh, lead-up into our next question. Because I think I first sort of really encountered um, this sort of like observation about like now, now power function in the Khanates uh, as, time, as time went on when I first uh, looked into Timor. And... Uh, here, here's the question so far. So there seems to be a general trend of making the Khan a figurehead as the famous uh, Toluid Han's uh, agent die. At least this is what I've understood from what, I, what I've read. Uh, do you think uh, Nogai is a part of this trend? I do not. Now that is, like we were saying before, uh, his popular image is the Khan maker. Well... So, sort of the the most uh, famous example in the source. So, Merkatamer. So, okay, maybe to simplify this. So, Batu founds. We can consider him the fellow who sets up the Golden Horde after the uh, invasion of Europe. Berka is often considered the, or ba he's Batu's younger brother, and he's the one who goes to war with Hulugu. Sometimes he's considered the first Khan. Merkatamer 
who is a is he a son? I, I have it written down here somewhere. I never remember the exact genealogy. Anyways, he's a descendant of uh, Batu, I think a grandson maybe. And but he's really the first truly independent Golden Horde Khan from 1266 to 1282. After he dies, the throne goes to his brother Turdamanka. Uh, now, the removal of Todermanka in 1287, uh, that's usually shown as this is no guy going in there, removing the Khan. Um, but this is not what is in the sources. And this is why you'll often see very contradictory statements on this. So um, I have this all written down. I can't remember the exact which exact author says what. Like, these are modern authors I'm talking about. So, Ro uh, oh yeah, I do remember. So, Roman Potrakeyev says that Nogai uh, was frustrated by Todormanka's, uh even minimal attempts to exert control over Nogai, so Nogai has him removed. Timothy May, in his work, in his 2018 um, The Mongol Empire, uh, it's, it's a broad coverage of like the Mongol Empire as a whole, and I actually very much recommend it if you want just like a singular uh, source, like general coverage of like the entirety of the Mongol Empire and uh, the four successor Khanites. It's, uh, it's a fantastic resource, and Timothy May is a great historian. Mm -hmm. But he says there that Nogai actually removed Todamanka because he didn't want a puppet, and that Todormunker was too weak a ruler for him, and he wanted more of a dynamic that he had had with Merka Tamor. Of course, these things are totally contradictory. Uh, but what we see in the sources, actually, is that... Uh, so, this is mentioned by the Mamluk authors and the history of Rashid al-Din, which are by far the most detailed on this matter. And these sources... Turdamanka is not removed by Nogai. Nogai has no involvement at all. However, it is a group of Joshid princes who remove Nogai. Uh, this is Tolabuka, who goes in there with, and it's essentially a four-year princely junta, and Tolabuka seems to rule in connection with these four other princes. Uh, so I do not believe at any stage in the 13th century that the Jotrid Khan is ever really a figurehead. Uh, the closest I think we get to that is with uh, Tokta and Nogai, after Nogai does in fact help Tokta take the throne from Tolabuka. Uh, Tokta Khan, so he's Khan from 1291 to 1304, maybe, I think. Uh, anyways... The exact years don't matter, but that is the closest we get. And he's still not being overpowered by Nogai then. So I do not think Nogai is a part of this trend because I don't think the Golden Horde ever really reaches that stage in the 13th century where the Khan is just a figurehead. So uh, we, we do see that in the four, late 14th century with Mamai and we're sort of the period of complete anarchy from the death of, after the death of Janabeg in 12, in 1344, I think, in the 1340s, late 1340s. So Janabeg dies, 
you basically have a 20-year period of total anarchy in, in the Golden Horde. Uh, dozens of cons go through the throne in one year in Sarai. We have coins minted in the names of six cons. So six cons took the throne in one single year there, and they're being appointed and deposed all the time. And that's when the Black Death goes through the whole. Uh, could you uh, start off uh, your answer on, uh, I believe it was the third question? The third question, yeah. So uh, do you want to think Nogai is a part of the trend of uh, making the cons a figurehead in the 13th century? No, I do not. Uh, I do not believe at any point in the 13th century that the Golden Horde Cons got to that point of weakness. Uh, and I do not think Nogai actually uh, exercised as much influence uh, as that. Uh, in the primary sources, we see that, in fact, most of the, or the major uh, coup in the Golden Horde of the 13th century is actually carried out by... Uh, Tolabuka and a group of Jochen princes. Uh, this is described in the histories of the contemporaries Rashid al-Din and some of the Mamluk authors, uh, Al-Nuayri uh, and uh, Babar's al-Mansuri, as well as a couple others, but those are sort of the main originators of the Mamluk uh, scholarship tradition regarding this. Uh, no guy, he's only actually involved in one actual, according to this, these sources, which are the most detailed sources on the matter, no guy is only involved in one overthrow of a Khan, and that is the overthrow of uh, Tolabuka in 1291 alongside Tolkta Khan. So no guy is not acting alone in this, and he, doesn't, uh, he essentially returns to his own territory uh, after this. And he's, he's never actually the one making decisions in the Horde as a whole. I believe that this is, so this sort of image of the figurehead cons, this is actually much more reflective of the period in the Golden Horde from about 1350 to 1380. Uh, the, the, the Horde's time of troubles. And this is, there's, it's an intense period of political anarchy the horde goes through dozens of cons. Uh, that's when the Black Death hits. There's economic troubles from the disruption of the overland trade routes with the breakup of much of the Mongol Empire, especially the Ilkhanite and Chagatai Khanite. Uh, then we see the cons of the Golden Horde becoming basically puppets for various kingmakers. Um, so I think this must have been... Uh, sort of transpire to the 13th century where uh, so of course that time of troubles that's uh, the heyday of Mamai and as we mentioned earlier uh, there is a tendency to see Nogai as sort of the, the first round of these con makers so Nogai, Mamai, Edegu and because, because this happened to be the situation under Mamai and people sort of assumed this was the situation under Nogai but uh, so no, I do not think Nogai is a part of part of this wider wider trend. So his main concern throughout the 13th century is his uh, personal territory, his appanage, and again in that sort of Romania, Western Ukraine sort of region, Bulgaria, and he interferes outside of that 
when it when these are things that may be affecting his territory or to secure his position there. So he at no point is he ever trying for actual power over the Golden Horde itself. Oh, you certainly convinced me. <laughs> um, As I hope, that's what I do in my thesis. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the thing with like the whole like Han makers and the sort of decentralization that I sort of picked up on in the later periods of like the various uh, Mongol Hanites, it's it kind of seems to be like something that and it kind of really really seems to gain its stride with like with figures like uh, with like with like Timur or uh, uh, Timur or I think uh Essen Han during the time of the Northern Yuan and but I think uh it's very it's very fascinating that it kind of seems like no guy kind of got this sort of I would say mischaracterization sort of just he wanted to be the guy writing his own uh, part his own his own darn territory and I guess uh, the here's the next part of the question and uh, the next question uh while no guy is the great great grandson of Chinggis Khan he never actually takes power as the true Khan of the golden horde uh why does he never do this well I think the most straightforward there's probably a couple layers to it probably the most straightforward answer. So while he is a descendant of Chinggis Khan and is a descendant of Jochi, and of course to rule the Golden Horde, you have to be a descendant of Jochi. Uh, Nogai is descended through like Jochi's seventh son. So in the Golden Horde, well, so while it is true in theory that the throne in all of the Khanites is open to any member of the Chinggisid family. What always ends up happening in practice is that it becomes essentially restricted to a main part of that lineage. So usually whichever son or grandson of Chinggis actually had a role in establishing that Tanite. So in the Golden Horde, uh, this is the line of Batu, and it will remain uh, in the hands of descendants of Batu up until the death the deaths of Uzbek Khan's sons in the 1340s and 50s. After that, the line of Batu basically goes extinct. Nogai is not a descendant of Batu. He is like well, 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 like past that. By the time he comes of age, there's there's a lot of little Jochids running around. Uh, by that point, he doesn't have the. Uh, well, he's not a descendant of Batu. It seems that he is also not a descendant of uh, an actual wife. Um, so he's, let me rephrase that. So Nogai's father, Totar, um, seems to have had Nogai with a concubine rather than an actual wife, which also would have excluded him from uh, lineage, made his, made his claim weaker. And sort of the third factor uh in the 13 or sorry in the 1260s during the war against Hulugu uh, no guy suffers a grievous wound to his face he loses an eye apparently to a blow from a spear uh, and if you've taken a spear to the face and it's cost you to lose an eye you've probably lost a bigger chunk of your face than just a, just an eye um, and there seems to 
I don't think it's ever really a written rule, but there's this sense that if you are going to be be the monarch, you have to be physically perfect. And I don't mean like, you know, tall and ripped with a six pack and, you know, but rather in a sense that you have to like physically have all of your bits still attached. Uh, so having a large chunk of your face missing, that if it comes to a horutai where you are going to be voted for, against the other candidates, that's probably going to exclude you as much as anything. Uh, so probably all of these things together is, I think, what leads to Nogai never actually putting his name in for the, the throne, if he even could. So so I think uh, that's, a, that's a very, that's very interesting, because like, the thing the thing I would always thought was like uh, when it came to like the cruel ties like you you get to choose your you get to uh, you get to have the have the ruler chosen part, uh, based not only on the candidates uh, lineage but maybe a bit of their like actual merit as a possible ruler and um, now uh, now it seems to some extent uh, looks are also a bit of a factor <laughs> well it's not necessarily that who's the most attractive. It's just, I think, the sense that a ruler has to have, he, he can't be missing uh, chunks of himself. There's a sense that he should be uh, symmetrical, um, might be the best word for it. Uh, not necessarily, like, it, it probably doesn't hurt to be uh, physically quite, like, we know by the time a Hublai becomes Khan, he's already <laughs> o o overweight and an alcoholic. Uh, but in that case, he's he's not missing any body parts, and also he has a huge amount of resources and a big army backing him up. So you can uh, play with that. And at no point does no guy actually have the uh, wealth or military strength to uh, make a claim to replace it, to... Uh, replace the missing eye essentially in terms of this now one thing that does seem to have happened so in the last years of the 1290s as his conflict with Tokra escalates it seems Nokai may have actually declared himself Khan not of the Golden Horde but just made himself a Khan because he begins to mint coins in his own name but these are only found in his territory. So it seems, I do not think he was ever making himself Khan of the Golden Horde, but like Khan of the Ulus of Nokai. Um, sort of like um, with Haidu Khan and uh, his war, his famous war with Hublai. Haidu was never trying to become Grand Khan. Uh, he, and despite the fact sometimes I think in that Marco Polo Netflix series I think he's like fighting for Kublai fighting against Kublai for the place of the Grand Khan uh, Kaidu never actually makes a claim to this he's only ever making a claim to be Khan of the Ulus of Ogadai. Uh and I think this is sort of similar with Nogai Nogai knows he cannot be the legitimate Khan of the Golden Horde because of what we uh, just discussed a couple minutes ago. But he can just make himself Khan of his own rules, which, as a Chinggisid, is his right. He has a right to be, to be a Khan. Uh, 
just not of the golden whore because of the established rules there. So, but, and I should say this, the evidence of that is not universally uh, ascribed to. The general, the idea is that if you are, the ability to mint coins in your own name is a right reserved for the monarch. That is a common understanding. I am not sure if that is actually only specifically the case, though. And just minting coins is not necessarily a, uh, uh, what sort, an indication indication of the intention. Like, there should be more, and I, or, so, oh yeah, that that's sort of the thoughts on the matter. So he's, because of all of that, to get back to your main question, no guy cannot become con of the Golden Horde. Uh, and never seems to have made an effort to, even if there were sort of loopholes for that. So that's very interesting. I now I'm used to kind of finding like the like the line of succession like um, kind of mostly limited to like the first wife. At least that's at least that's why I understood from leading the line from at least uh, Chingus to Ogadai. But anyways, uh. I guess I should say moving on. Um, so, what is like the coolest slash funniest little factoid that you ever found about Nogai Han? Like, think of the time you told me about like uh, Chingasan being scared of dogs. <laughs> so, probably my f my favorite is um, so as you mentioned before, Nogai marries a daughter of the Byzantine Emperor uh, Michael the Eighth. He's the, he's the fellow who uh, retakes Constantinople in twelve sixty one. Uh, sort of a bad timing to do that because he ends up basically sandwiched between the Ilkhanite and Nokai in the uh, Balkans. Uh, in the very late 1260s, Nogai is sending raiding parties into Thrace uh, and base, basically approaching Constantinople itself. Uh, and Michael Michael VIII sends one of his illegitimate daughters to to, to be married off to Nogai. Uh, and so Michael becomes the father-in-law to, to Nogai. This is in 1270, I believe, that the marriage occurred. 1273, actually, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and for the record, Michael also sends a daughter to marry uh, Hulagu. Hulagu dies first, and she marries Abaka, Ilkhan. So he, he's playing both sides here. But any, anyways, uh, so Nogai is the son-in-law of the Byzantine Emperor. He's given a title, Archon. Means like a provincial ruler. Uh, so he's and what ends up, he will interfere or not interfere. He will assist uh, his father-in-law uh, several times until Michael's death in twelve eighty-two. Uh, so when there's rebellions, especially by a fellow in Thessaly, John of Thessaly, I think his name was. Uh, no guy sends a bunch of his soldiers to go in there and assist Michael in campaigns with him. Uh, but of course, as a, as a good Roman emperor, you have to be sending gifts to the barbarians. <laughs> so Michael, he's often sending gifts to no guy. And one of the uh, anecdotes recorded in the primary sources, this is in uh, Pacameras, I believe. So he sends to no guy. Uh, a lovely diadem, a nice silver-sided diadem, and sort of a 
some sort of uh, jewel-encrusted shirt. I don't remember specifically. I don't remember the specific object, but it's something like that. Some some pretty dainty things like that. Lots of jewelry. And so the envoy is presented to Nogai, and Nogai looks at it, puts the diadem on his head, puts on the shirt, and goes, "Will these protect me from thunderstorms? <laughs> Will these uh, keep?" Prevent me from losing stamina in battle. No, then what's the point in wearing these? So then he rips them off and throws them on the ground and like stomps on them and tears them to pieces. And... <laughs> but he just could not and goes back to just wearing his regular uh, del, sort of traditional Mongolian clothing. And that always, I think that's always my my fear. That sort of tells you what kind of uh, the the princess from Constantinople. She's Probably not living in a palace with no guy. <laughs> I guess say I, I because of that, I, I kind of have an image in my head that no guy is a, one of those fellows who he's a proud nomad. He's not all the business of the day is being conducted in a gear or in a felt tent yurt. He's not uh, not just living in buildings nonsense. So that's. That's very fascinating. It kind of, it's kind of this sort of like, kind of this sort of like, he's really making a show of like, in the sense of like he he's considered an archon of the Byzantine Empire, but yet he, but yet he's basically showing that he's he's really in charge here, and he's going, and sometimes he's going to make a mockery out of the errors of Rome. <laughs> And it's... I don't. I don't think he had much respect for the for the Byzantines. And I mean, why would you? You're a descendant of Chinggis Khan. Heaven has ordained the whole of the world to belong to you and your family. What? The Byzantine Empire is essentially Constantinople and a little bit of Greece. You show them respect. Sends <laughs> <laughs> they they sent you a bunch of jewelry. You're a nomad. Why would you care about the, a diadem or, or whatever it was? So, yeah, that's very fascinating. But anyway, so moving on. So, what sort of uh, sources on Nogai Han do you have access to in Vienna, and what primary sources are you uh, basing your thesis on? Mm -hmm. So it's not uh, so much the primary sources, uh, or rather. When I came, so for those of you listening, I used to live in Canada. Now I live in Vienna for purposes of my master's uh, thesis. Uh, I haven't gotten new primary sources that I would not have been able to access back in Canada because they're actually all online. Uh, what is useful is actually the uh, contacts and the uh, professors, my specific supervisors at the university here. Um, as well as people I've met through here uh, and other people. Of course, being in Europe, it's a lot easier to now uh, contact and discuss with uh, other European scholars focusing on the Golden Horde or 13th century uh, Southeastern Europe uh, sort of things. I mean, just a simple fact that I'm in the same time zone as everyone here instead of nine hours behind is a lot more uh, convenient. I was able to do a conference over zoom of course but uh and i discussed a little bit of this stuff with some uh people there who presented at the conference and made some good contacts there so for my purposes 
that is why Vienna is more useful to me. I'm not looking at uh, parchments actually maintained in any uh, museum or archives or anything here. Uh, but as for the actual primary sources I'm working on, it's uh, quite a number. Uh, the most detailed sources on Novi are actually coming from the Ilkhanite. Uh, of these, of course, the dominant is the Universal History of Rashid al-Din Hamadani. He was the uh, vizier of the Ilkhanite at the uh, start of the 1300s. A very intelligent man recorded just a mammoth amount of information there. Uh, I'm also using sources from the Mamluk Sultanate. Uh, Rukinod and Baibars, uh, oh, yeah, or, or also called Baibars al-Mansuri and uh, al-Nuberi, and then some supporting stuff from some later Mamluk authors. Uh, because of that alliance between the Mamluks and the Golden Horde, uh, these fellows had actually, or they had access to correspondence between the Mamluk Sultan and the Jochit Khan. As well, Nokai also sent uh, letters to the uh, Mamluk sultans, especially Baibars, and it seems that this actual correspondence was used as the sources uh, by these Mamluk authors. Uh, so these are sort of the main evidence against or for the reinterpretation of Nogai. Uh, I'm also using information from the Rus sources, so the Chronicle of Novgorod, uh, the Hapatian Galician Chronicle. Uh, Laurentian Codex. Uh, these now these sources aren't actually the Rus sources are interesting because how little they actually provide for information on the Golden Horde. If you're lucky, they'll say something like, "In 1291, there was tumult among the Tartars. Uh, Tsars Tokta and Tsars Nogai killed Tsars Telobuka and Tsars Algui or something like that." Um, but the Hypatian uh, Fulhinian Chronicle, no, sorry, my apologies, the Galician Fulhinian Chronicle actually provides a lot of information on uh, Nogai's interactions with uh, Galicia and his uh, invasion of Hungary's, uh, Hungary and Poland in the 1280s. Uh, also, another important source of information here is Byzantine sources. Of these, uh, Georgius Pacameres, writing in the early 1300s, I forget the exact year on him, uh, is the most relevant. He's the one who gave us that fun little anecdote of Nogai destroying the Byzantine jewelry. Uh, and there's a little bit of supporting, or these Byzantine sources, of course, being Romans, they are only concerned about what is happening as it affects the, the Roman Empire, such as it was. So they're not actually all that great for stuff within the Horde, but they do provide a lot of information, information, interesting information on Nogai's interaction with the Byzantine Empire, but also how they perceived him and the terminology they use to refer to him and how they dealt with him. Uh, obviously, if they felt he was more powerful individual, more influential, they're going to treat him uh, more generously. Uh, there's some supporting information from uh, correspondence between Western Europeans and merchants in uh, Crimea, for example, and sort of rumor, rumors of... There's a great article by um, Alexander Uzlak 
on uh, sort of echoes. He calls the article is called "Echoes of the Conflict Between Choctaw and Nogai in Western European Sources" or something like that, uh, and it mentions or it provides the brief mentions of the conflict when it does show up in Western European sources. So there, there are very brief mentions, but that the fact that there are mentions is interesting and indicative of uh, the influence Nogai must have had at the end of his life in order to be mentioned at all in, in France, for example. Uh, and so the final source of interest for the purposes of this research paper uh, is Marco Polo. Uh, so Marco Polo's travels, uh, in, or in Marco Polo's travels, the actual final, like very final chapters are actually dedicated to Nogai and sort of the, the Golden Horde. The, the book actually ends with the conflict between Nogai and Toksha. Uh, it was initially written in 1300, uh, or written, so Marco Polo was, he was held in a prison by the Genoese and was dictating this to his cellmate Rusticello. And it seemed they were actually dictating this before news of the final outcome of the war between Tokta and Nogai came to them, because in most editions, because there's a lot of manuscript editions, uh, Marco Polo's work actually ends with an abortive declaration of Nogai's victory over Tokta. <laughs> no, in fact, he dies a couple months after that. Uh, but Marco Polo's uh, version is very interesting for my purposes because none of these other sources I've been mentioning, none of them are describing Nogai in this kingmaker image, or in this conmaker image, sorry. He is deposing kings in Bulgaria, and he is interfering in Hungary and the Rus principalities. But in this Islamic tradition, so Rashid al-Din, the Mamluk authors, Nogai is only involved in the overthrow of Tolabuka in 1291 alongside Tokta Khan. He plays no role in any of the transitions, or that is the transitions between Khans prior to 1291. Marco Polo's account, Nogai does play a role in all of these transitions. Uh, and now it should be stated Marco Polo's account also confuses all the names and gets the chronology mixed up and Totamanka and Tolabuka become switched around in the order of the cons and it's it's messed but it's interesting that here is the edition or here is the uh, I guess closest source to or contemporary source which is actually depicting this so what I suspect might have happened is that easier access to Marco Polo as opposed to these Islamic sources because Marco Polo's work was spread all over Europe you know over the 14th century it's that's an ease of accessibility to the European historians that is not uh, available until quite recently of these other sources but so far what I found is that the early, uh, and by early I mean like 19th century, early 20th century modern historians are actually accurately following this uh, two traditions. That is, the, the early modern historians are describing what is happening as per what is described 
in the Islamic sources. Often there's a lot of exaggeration and hyperbole, but they are not relying solely on Marco Polo's account. However, the con maker image is showing up in the more recent literature. So at some point that's entered in, and I'm still trying to find the origins of that. So that's, that, that's what's currently going on with my, uh, the literary side of my thesis. That's, that's very fascinating. Wow. It's... Yep. So anyways, uh, moving on. So like, what do you think is uh, Nogai Han's uh, leadership style, if you will? Well, see, that's kind of a tough one because well, we have a lot of sources talking about Nogai and his interactions with others, like his foreign policy, essentially. There isn't a lot of information on what he's actually doing within his kingdom and how his, uh, what his rule actually looks like. Um, Alexander Uzalox, he's done, he's a Serbian uh, historian, uh, great historian, and he's done some interesting, uh, some interesting stuff on that. Uh, essentially what it's, what it seems to, to have happened is there is an influx of nomadic peoples, uh, Alans, Kiptraks, and a small group of Mongols into the region with no guy's arrival into them. Uh, again, that lower end of the Danube, uh, Romania, Dobruja sort of, uh, area. Uh, we do have mentions of... For instance, Nogai lowering the taxes in his area uh, to lower than that of what is being paid in tax in the uh, rest of the Golden Horde, like vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Rus principalities. And he's doing this in order to get uh, peasants and people to come into his kingdom. And sort of this sense of uh, repopulating sort of a wanting to bring people in uh, and like you said he is minting coins in there he establishes a capital and and by capital it's kind of we, we shouldn't picture like he's building a, his own version of Karakorum but rather this is his administrative center where the bureaucracy that exists in his kingdom such as it is if we can call it a kingdom is set up there um the Mongols call the city Zakshi. I don't remember what the... I think it's also called Izatsiya, but I'm not quite sure on the name because I've only ever read it in the Mongol uh, rendition. Uh, now, so that's... So essentially, we don't have a lot of information on what kind of administrative style or... Uh, uh, policies that no guy put through in his kingdom. However, most of what we do know about his actions are his military actions. And what is sort of interesting in this is that almost every single campaign no guy leads himself uh, is a defeat. He very rarely does he actually win battles. Uh, I'm not sure to quite. The exact reason for this, uh, he's often fighting against much larger odds. Um, 
So when he does have victories, they're often against foes where he actually outnumbers them. I think he actually just wasn't all that good a all that good a commander. But essentially, his greatest strength is that he's just an incredibly wily politician, and he's able to sort of spot an opportunity and sort of weasel his way into that and interfere. And uh, he can show up. He can move very quickly. And he shows up with a large group of horsemen, uh, or horse archers, rather. And this is what's making him the key player in uh, events in the Balkans. And uh, allowing him to there interfere, uh, replace monarchs. There's an uprising in Bulgaria in the late 1270s, I want to say. Uh, Ivailo, the uprising of Ivailo. And no guy ends up sort of playing the decisive role in the final outcome of that. But basically only when he has been asked to by the Byzantine emperor. So he's not always uh, proactive in what he is doing here. So essentially what I picture with no guy is a guy who likes to sit back and see where the cards are falling and then make his play, see how he can make the best out of that. And when we, and I'll explain that a bit more with your next question on the uh, uh, invasion of Hungary and Poland there. All right. Oh, that's... And so, it ca yep. So, uh, probably one of uh, Nogai's most famous acts was the second invasion of Hungary. What led into this invasion, and uh, how successful was it? So, what ends up happening, there's a lot of stuff that happens in Hungary after the 1242 invasion, and we won't get into quite all of that today because that's it's a long time to explain, but short, the very short answer as to what, or a bit of context, Mongol invasion, Mongols withdraw 1242, uh, King Bela IV returns to Hungary. Try he starts rebuilding the kingdom. There's new castle defenses in the western half of the kingdom. He's making local marriage alliances, and most important for this is he invites the Cumans back into Hungary, and marries his daughter or sorry his son uh, Stephen to a Cuman princess. It's sort of a marriage alliance, and these Cumans are set up in sort of the center of the Hungarian plain between the Danube and the Tisha rivers. Uh, this is, so you probably notice, Janos, uh, the modern part of Hungary called Kumania. Mm -hmm. uh, Kiskunzag, I yeah. think. Yeah. Nagikunzag, yeah. So this is when uh, this shows up, because this, the area that is called that today, that was the area that Bela gave to the Cumans in uh, the 1250s. Uh, because it's, Essentially, this region was totally depopulated uh, by the Mongol invasion in the 1240s. So, and as that was uh, grassland, pasture, it was it was a good area for nomads. Uh, by the fact that there were no peasants there anymore, there are no Hungarians there anymore, and you wouldn't have the same issue you had when the first invasion, when the uh, the Cuman forces were. Uh, having this friction with the nomads because animals were ranging over the fields and stuff like that. So the Cumans are set up as sort of this first line of defense in Hungary proper. Uh, so sk skipping over most of the, the sordid Hungarian history, there's 
civil wars and factionalism over Hungary up until, or basically throughout the 13th century. When is there not? Uh, (laughs) There's fighting in there, and the Cumans are sort of on both sides of a conflict between King Bela and his son, Stephen. Bela dies in 1270, I think. Uh, His son, Stephen, reigns for about two or five years before he dies. (laughs) And he is succeeded by his very young son, um, Ladislaus, or Laszlo. Uh, now, Laszlo was a son of uh, King Stephen and his Kuman wife. Mm-hmm. And he grew up, he, well, it seems he was grown up, sort of raised in the Kuman culture, or grew up with an affinity to it, possibly because of how he was treated by the Hungarian barons. At the time he became king, he was actually held captive by uh, other Hungarian nobility. So he is sort of remembered as Laszlo the Kuman, or Ladislaus the Kuman. And his, he preferred a company of Kumans to the Hungarians. He lived in Kuman camps, dressed like a Kuman, took Kuman mistresses, and avoided his regular, uh, his legal wife, such as she would have been called by the other Christians. Uh, and showers favors on them and all this and that. Uh, however, he's not showering quite enough favors on them, and there's a lot of pressure on Stephen, or sorry, there's a lot of pressure on Ladislaus to distance himself from the Cumans. And there's, there's laws or uh, papal officials coming in demanding that uh, essentially, the Cumans stop nomadizing and adopt Christianity and do all these things. And you have all these pressures building together, and this leads to a revolt of the Cumans in 1280, which is only crushed in 1282 at a battle on Lake Hod, uh, which sees a large flight of, or a large exodus of Cumans from Hungary, though not all of them flee. And where do these Cumans go? Why, to our one-eyed friend in southeastern Europe, Nogai Han. So it seems the Nogai, he receives all these uh, well-armed horse archers with open arms. And essentially what he hears is that the main line of Hungary's defense has just left the kingdom. And uh, this looks like a great chance for to take advantage of Hungarian weakness. Uh, so they spend some time building an army and in uh, coordination with Tolobuka, a rising Trojan prince, they lead an attack on Hungary in 1285. Call from city. Uh, and it does not go well. Uh, there is a couple reasons for this. Um, for starters, Tolobuka and Nogai were not the equals to Subodai and Batu. Uh, I think a large part of it is they just, it seems they failed to really coordinate their actions and were not able to achieve any sort of the strategic successes that had been enjoyed in the 1240s attack. Uh, Hungary was more fortified. Uh, not so much in the Hungarian plain, but it seems that there was, in the western half of the kingdom, 
particularly, and to a lesser extent in the eastern half. Uh, castle designs had been improved. An argument made by uh, my friend and actually a fellow Canadian, uh, Stephen Powell, is that essentially the Hungarians saw that the only thing standing after the 1240s invasion were stone castles and buildings, so that there may have been an increase in uh, their construction uh, or in the last half of the 13th century. Uh, it seems that Nogai and Tolabuka had anticipated that there would not be uh, any sort of coordinated Hungarian defense. So it looks like they split their forces into small groups, just like, yeah, go nuts, guys, just raid and attack and do whatever. And this brings us to the next level of the Hungarian defensive strategy, which was sort of a building of local defensive forces. So uh, arming and training, I guess, uh, local troops to rise up in times of need. And this is what happens, especially in the northeast, sort of so through modern uh, Slovakia, uh, Schwisch County, uh, Zaros County, I believe. Uh, my friend uh, Mikhail Hoschlak has done a lot of work on this, and he's you can read his uh, academia.edu profile. He has some articles uploaded there on the finds he has found. That he's he's an archaeologist focusing on on this sort of material. Essentially, the Mongols operating in these small parties all of a sudden find themselves fighting SIF resistance wherever they go. Uh, there's a, a nice big uh, narrative chronicle discussing this invasion like there is for the 1240s attack. So we have it's very tentatively reconstructed based off of charter evidence and archaeology and sort of scant mentions from outside sources. Uh, it's it's now it's not a total like collapse of the Mongol forces here by any means. Uh, it seems from the charter evidence that uh, King Ladislaus never even got close to the Mongols. He essentially stayed on the far edge of the western half of the kingdom, as far from them as he could. It does not seem the royal army was ever actually raised to combat the Mongols. There's no big battle wherein the Mongols are overcome or anything like that. Uh, in fact, the Mongols are actually described uh, driving a large force of slaves and captives and uh, captured animals out of the kingdom. Uh, and they get what happens is they get ambushed in South Transylvania in the Carpathians no guy loses most of his captives, but he forces his way through fine. Tolabuka, on the other hand, he ends up basically getting lost in the mountains for days, caught, uh, trapped by uh, inclement weather, and seems to lose a huge portion of his force to exposure, uh, mountain ambushes, rains and snows and starvation and all of these things. And this is... Perhaps the one detail of the second invasion, which is unanimous in all of the source traditions, so including the Rus principalities, the Mamluk authors, uh, I, I don't know if the charter evidence specifies this as well, but Tolbuka loses many, many men in the mountains, and he essentially blames Nogai for this, is he feels that Nogai 
abandoned him, left him to die, something like that, especially since Nogai's troops seem to have got out, maybe not unscathed, but in much, much better shape than Tor. Ah, there we are, back again, so. Uh, so, yep. Uh, yeah. So, where, where, where about do you think we were? Sorry? I think you were describing, uh, the... Uh, I, I think you were right at, uh, describing, I believe, the snowstorm? Yes, okay. Uh, so apologies if I repeat myself here, but the one thing that is consistent among basically all the source traditions, Roost Principalities, Mamluk sources, is that there is a horrific, or when Tolabuka's army is attempting to leave the Carpathians, they are trapped by snow, snowstorms, uh, rainstorms. They're trapped in the in the mountain in the mountain range. They basically lose their route. There's local ambushes, and his force is just decimated. He loses hundreds and hundreds of men and animals, and essentially blames no guy for it some manner because no guy's force while probably not totally unscathed gets out in much better shape uh, now they do go on to attack poland in 1288 uh, together that is no guy and tolobuka do this attack it is not an outright defeat by any means but it's inconclusive and it seems tolobuka gets frustrated uh, when they go to attack uh, Warsaw, I believe, and he finds a, no guys is already there, for instance. And Tolabuka's feeling that no guy is playing with him almost, that he's sort of anticipating his moves and just trying to to piss him off and waste his time. And uh, Tolabuka, he doesn't want to play with no guy, essentially. And he does the 13th century equivalent of uh, getting mad and you take the ball and you just leave the court. <laughs> he, just, he just leaves the campaign. And it should be stated, too, if it wasn't clear from the uh, description there, is that when they are doing these operations, Nogai and Tolbuka are not moving in one army. They are two separate forces. So that is why they, they're not actually linking up here. They're staying in some sort of uh, contact by riders, but they're never able to combine their forces, and it seems to an extent Tolabuka was a bit of a hothead. Um, now Tolabuka becomes Khan, actually, around this time. He was probably, probably became Khan after the uh, attack on Hungary, and then was already Khan by the attack time of the attack on Poland. So he, he could feel a little haughty there, but you're the con, you shouldn't have to be getting a repulse out of Poland, of all places. So it's pro it's not a coincidence that uh, it seems Tolubuka basically starts to plot against Nogai after this, and that helps encourage uh, Nogai and Tokta to sort of work together and overthrow Tolubuka in 1291. And from the Mongol perspective, that's probably the greatest uh, consequence of the Hungarian attack. And that is the last like major Mongol attack on Hungary. There, there will be more small raids and stuff, but none of them... What was interesting, especially after the 1285 attack, it becomes very difficult to actually find mentions of, the sort, of these attacks and sources. Like There'll be a charter 
saying something something like, oh, so-and-so was awarded this castle for his defense or his role in repulsing a Mongol attack in 1306, something like that. So there, there's no substantive Mongol efforts against Hungary or Poland again after the 1280s. Uh, it seems the, the efforts to operate there were just getting too difficult. Local forces seem to have found effective defensive measures against Mongol attacks, though these aren't exactly clear what these all were. As again, due to the nature of the sources, we don't have nice uh, specific descriptions providing us this information. So, but it seems local local defensive ability mattered more than trying to bring a full army against the Mongols, because that is what we see in both of these occasions, is the Mongols are frustrated by local defenses, uh, stiff sieges. It does not seem they brought any siege equipment with them, like no catapult crews or anything. Uh, so they lack the ability to force the major cities of Poland, for example, and uh, they are forced to withdraw there. That's very fascinating. I think the I think the thing that I, I can see from uh, this whole like uh, from these invasions is like the the Hungarians and the Poles seem to have learned from their terrible experiences at like Legnitz and Mohi, mm -hmm. and the uh, and the Mongols in this uh, sort of time period they got. They didn't completely weaken per se, but they but they certainly uh, got um, got a little bit like decentralized and disconnected, and this really and this really allowed for the Hungarians and the Poles to really almost face the Mongol uh, Mongol armies with uh, as uh, 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 two uh, two major Mongol armies as sort of individual um, individual armies rather than hoping that they would coordinate and well, attack sensibly. Like I said there. That what Batu and Subodai did, as well as the rest of the Mongol forces in the 1240s attack, like that is incredibly effective when that's done well, but it is so difficult to do that properly. It requires so much training and discipline and logistical ability to be having all of these many armies operating together effectively, sometimes hundreds of kilometers apart. That's incredibly difficult to do, and you need troops have been training for that their entire lives. By the 1280s attack, at least in the Golden Horde, it's it's been 20 years since uh, an attack of any scale anywheres. Uh, the war with the uh, Ilkhanite cools down. There, there is a very devastating attack on Poland in the early 1260s. Um, and the Polish source is actually described as more destructive than the 1241 attack. Uh, but since then... There just has not been an opportunity for the forces to receive the same training that Batus and Subodais enjoyed in uh, 1241. And I think that strategic, it's that it's not that they are not tactically less dangerous. It's that strategically, they don't have the same, it's the same edge. They cannot maximize their strength. That sounds good. So with uh, the end of the second invasion, I guess we'll move on to question nine. Um, no guy collaborated with uh, multiple Hans as the Ulus Jochi's uh, de facto ruler. Probably uh, uh, the most notable being uh, Talabuga, I believe. 
Yeah, it's Tolabuka, yeah, who we've been talking about in the second invasion there. What do you think uh, influenced his choices of, like, who to work with? So, as uh, we mentioned a while ago now, there was uh, some discrepancy in uh, modern historians' interpretations if uh, Nohai wanted a Khan to be a puppet or not, or if he actually wanted a guy to have some independence kind of thing. Uh, and as I've been saying, I... I don't really follow that argument. I, or I, I do not really support that purpose of view. I think he was mostly uninvolved with this. Um, I think the reason, so the reason of the partnership with Tolabuka, uh, I think this was essentially, so no guy was going to be involved either way as he is the regional commander there. He's the one whose appanage actually borders Hungary. So it makes most sense to have his involvement. He may have even been the instigator of the idea. Uh, Tolavuka was by then an up-and-coming Jochit Khan. I believe, or sorry, up-and-coming Jochit Prince. I believe he had designs on the throne and was trying to basically build his reputation as a military commander. Uh, we mentioned before at the Hurultai, you know, you have to be have all of your features and have sort of resources and military ability and the proper descent to make your claim for the throne. There is not evidence, as far as I have seen, that Tolabuka was actually involved in military operations prior to this. The currently reigning Jochit Khan, Teredamanka, uh, he is described in the sources as so he becomes Khan after Merkatamer's death, and he becomes more interested in religion and obsessed with Sufis and uh, things like that rather than ruling. So Tolabuka wants to get some military experience, uh, make a bit of a name for himself, and in conjunction with Nogai, he uh, leads these attacks. Uh, I do not think this was Nogai necessarily choosing him, though he may have been aware of Tolabuka. Um, and of course, for the attack on Poland, I think Tolabuka was already Khan. Uh, he likely became Khan in the intervening years. So, yeah, the Khan wants to be involved. He wants to build this uh, reputation for himself. And again, this is, again, tied back to my argument that no guy is not the decisive power power broker in the Golden Horde in the 13th century. He is not simply picking someone out of a lineup and going, I like your qualities, we'll use you. He is, this is what circumstances are presenting to him. So when this is the Jochid uh, prince who has the most interest in attacking Hungary, and we'll uh, fight with him. Uh, now, as we've been describing here, Tolubuka and Nokai have a falling out because of these European campaigns. And Tolubuka seems to be scheming against Nogai. But he's also scheming against other Jochid princes. Uh, namely, uh, his nephew, Tokta, who is seen, uh, I forget if there's a specific reason uh, mentioned in the sources or not, but he's basically seen as a threat of some kind to 
Tolubuka. I, I dissenter to Tolubuka and the princely Junta. Uh, pro- probably another person who wanted to be in line for the throne, essentially. So Tolubuka, he makes the uh, moves against Tokta first. And Tokta, in some, well, in some of the sources, Tokta goes to Nogai for assistance against Tolubuka, or Nogai goes to Tokta to uh, coordinate against uh, Tolubuka. But again here, this is not uh, Nogai seeing, ah, I really want to put Tokta on the throne. This is sort of, it's an alliance of necessity. Enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of uh, kind of matter. Not, not that they were enemies sort of thing, but uh, useful, rather useful allies for the moments and the pressures that were required. Uh, so I believe those are sort of, again, when we've, when you asked uh, before on what I thought about Novi's leadership style, he's the kind of guy who sits, he watches things where they're falling into place and then tries to make uh, his best play off of that. And sometimes he makes better choices than others. So in 1291, they do overthrow uh, Tolubuka. It's sort of a fun little anecdote. So tell, uh, no guy sends word to Tolubuka's mother saying that he wants to make peace because he's an old man and he's going and he's fallen sick. He's going to die soon and he wants to make amends for the good of the Jokchurus. So, so what Nogai does, he says, okay, we'll meet on whatever site on this day. And they meet there. And what and he says, okay, come along, just you guys, because it's just going to be me and Mike Mygear. So Tolabuka and the other uh, four uh, princes who are making up the junta here, they come into Nogai's tent, and Nogai is lying there. And so what Nogai had done is he'd, he'd swallowed blood clots before they came in. And so as they're walking in, He's coughing up blood and looking all sick, and because uh, he's always old by that point, he's like he's in his sixties, and he's saying, "Oh, you young men, you know, put put aside the the frailties and of youth and the uh, the greed and the hunger and everything, and you know v- value what you have." And I, I just want to make amends. And while he's doing this, and it seems the princes they're totally convinced by this. So while this is happening. A signal's been sent to Tokta and his men, who are upstream or wherever. And now they show up with a whole bunch of armed men and kill these captured Jochen princes. <laughs> and that's how uh, Tolabuk was overthrown. Uh, and I think initially, no guy just wants to return to his place, but he, he starts grabbing more territory, extending his, he's gradually extending in this period, extending his influence easterly towards Crimea, towards Rus principalities, and now he's butting up with the Joshit Khan. Uh, he starts making demands of Tokta. I think this is the point where he starts to think, all right, now I'm the big dog. I can do, I can demand what I want of the, of the Khan. Uh, and he oversteps. He asks, and it might have just been a test at some point. Rashid al-Din says that Nogai basically asks uh, Tokta to kill his own father-in-law. 
something like that. Or hand over his father-in-law to Nogai because the father-in-law had wronged Nogai in some manner. Tokta says no. Uh, tensions, ri tensions rise and it ends up breaking out into war around 1296 or so. And so that, that's around the time when it seems Nogai begins to mint coins his own name. Hence the thought that Nogai was declaring himself Khan in his own territories and saying, you know what, I don't need, I don't need the pretense of being uh, vassal to the Khan and Sarai, I'll just be my own Khan. Uh, Nogai, he, he invades Crimea. Uh, his, uh, grand, one of his grandson, one of his grandchildren are actually killed in Crimea. Uh, he defeats Tokta once in battle. Tokta manages to regroup. Uh, there's a rebellion in Nogai's newly taken territory. He's distracted by that. Tokta makes peace with the uh, Ilkhan. So he, because of that, he brings up all of the uh, forces usually left at the border along the Caucasus uh, to guard against the Ilkhanite. So he comes up with like an overwhelming force and just absolutely uh, annihilates Nogai. Nogai's very final ploy is that the two, so the two armies line up along a river and Nogai, he sends word to Tokra, he says, oh, I'm an old man, I don't want to fight anymore. It was just my sons instigating it, I didn't want to fight. Please, <laughs> let's just meet and make peace. Uh, and at the same time, Nogai's sons are going upstream with an army to try and flank Tokra's troops. Tokra knows the ploy, he doesn't fall for this, and he basically just attacks Nogai's forces. It's a complete rout to Nogai's forces, just disintegrates. Nogai is captured, Nogai is captured by Russian horsemen while he's fleeing. Uh, he's injured, and the Rus, uh, the Rus, his Rus captors go to take, or capture him, and he says, take me to Nogai, take me to Tokta, for he is the Khan, he'll know what to do with me. But he dies of his injuries uh, on the way. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, and I might not be, but that the Rus horsemen who captured him and ended up killing Nogai then are executed because they did not have the right to kill a Chinggisid prince, even <laughs> if it was Nogai. Ah, makes sense, makes sense. So, and, and that's the end of the reign of Nogai Khan. That's, wow. That's quite. That's quite the end to a very, to a very engaging life, if you will. And I'll uh, start wrapping up here with uh, our last question. Uh, what sort of uh, connections did Nogai have with uh, the Nogai Horde? So, this is another one of those areas where it's the historians have completely different uh, views on this. So the Nogai Horde does not appear in the sources until the 15th century, after the dissolution of the Golden Horde, after Tamar's invasion. Uh, and they appear sort of in the eastern Volga steppe, sort of, I think, north, northwestern coastline of the Caspian Sea. The ruling uh, tribe here of the Nogai Horde are the Manjits. Manjits. I forget exactly how it's pronounced, which is it, the Turkified Mongol tribe. 
of course, with Chinggisid stock princes. Now, some historians, um, they uh, because of this, because of the name Novi Horde, Novi Khan, decided, okay, Novi is related to the Novi Horde. So, uh, when Novi set up in the, they, 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 they will say that when Novi set up in the Western Steppe, so again, Lower Danube area, that Nogai came with a core of Manjit tribesmen. This is not mentioned in any of the primary sources. There is no explicit connection made between Nogai and the Manjits. There is no indication that his uh, family land was in the west, the northern Caspian uh, steppe lands. Might have been, but this is not something described in the in the sources in any manner. There is no 13th or 14th century source which would seems to make this connection at all between them. In fact, it seems just to be a matter of they have the same name. And so obviously, okay, well, no guy, no guy horde, same name, convincing, right? It's uh, and that's not an unusual thing for a tribal confederation to take a name after a, a famous founder. But Nogai's name is not unique to him. So Nogai, for those unawares, is the Mongolian word for dog. Uh, speculated he was probably born in the year of the dog, in the in the twelve-year animal cycle, and so probably like 1237, 1238, something like that. And that was a very standard thing for Mongolian families. You'd name your children something indirect, like dog or nobody, or the first thing you saw. The idea being that you don't give it just like a human name, because then that will attract possibly evil spirits that would then attack the child and bring sickness and bad luck on it. So you name it after an animal or something, because then the spirits are tricked and they don't know it's a person. Uh, so but because of that, no guy is not uh, a unique, not a unique name, not a unique appellation. So it's entirely possible that the Nogai horde, they just took it. It's a horde of the dog. It's not, a, it does not have to necessarily be tied to Nogai Khan in order for them to use the name. There is also argument, though, that it is a completely unrelated linguistic connection and that it came from a, basically the regional Turk dialect there. Um, what, what did it mean? I can't. I can't remember what the suggested meaning was, but something to do with sea, because they're right by the Caspian there. Ah, I'm drawing a blank on that one. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but but anyways, essentially, it's completely unrelated linguistic origin that also just happened to end up becoming no guy. Um, I have been told, or no, I have seen rather from modern people who consider themselves no guys that 
Nogai Khan has sort of been adopted as like a, you know, ancient hero of the lineage. But the thing about that, I have to wonder is if this is one of those cases where this, these are modern people seeing this, like modern people, like modern Nogais, that is, seeing this and sort of retroactively putting Nogai as his ancient forefounder, rather than rather, rather than an actual tradition, which uh, which survived. And of course, making new traditions is hardly unusual. Uh, Timur is probably the most famous example of that. Uh, really stressing that he had shared ancestry with Genghis Khan uh, <laughs> on his tomb. One of his grandsons, probably Shah Rukh, uh, built, him, built him a new tomb. And uh, in it, now, Tamer was actually just a descendant of Chinggis Khan himself and also a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, because he's the sword of Islam. <laughs> Yeah. So, Despite the fact that he, most of his kill count is Muslim. <laughs> I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like they specified he was a descendant of Ali, uh, the prophet. Oh, uh, I see where they're going. <laughs> like, so it, it's just like, you can make stuff up, right? You can just, if you want to give your ancestor or your people a new ancestor, there's nothing really stopping you from doing You can do it at any time. Uh, the difference here is, in the case of Nogai Han and the Nogai Horde, that there is not uh, surviving medieval materials which support any sort of connection. And again, like even if you look on a map, Nogai Horde, north, northern coast of the Caspian Sea. Nogai Khan spent all of his life, or most of his career, from 1267 to his death in 1300, in the uh, western end of the steppe, around Romania, Lower Danube, Bulgaria, like, like that kind of region. That's a long gap in between there, and there's no indication Nogai ever held power in that region, that he was likely only a relatively minor figure up until his appointment in the western steppe, there's no indication he had family over in that region. And even if he did, uh, like say that that region was his father's territory. Uh, but why would then the son, who never seems to have held power there, especially since he was from a, born from a concubine, there's no sense that they would then be uh, adopting his name. and. I suppose you could say, oh, but there was family there, and they heard how powerful Nogai was in the West and wanted to honor him. But again, Nogai was only powerful in the West. He never made an attempt to be the prime figure in the Golden Horde itself and exert control over all of its vast territory. That would be a huge leap in power for him. And so from that point of view, for them, like, why would they care about, oh, there's, he's an influential figure in the western end of the steppe, but he doesn't actually have any role uh, east of even the Don River or the Dnieper. I think at his height, his influence extends to the Dnieper, but just for a couple years uh, in the 12, uh, or hang on, I got my map here. 
Yeah, the, yeah, like as far as the Dnieper and Crimea. So I I do not think there is a connection between the names. Uh, it's, it's just one of those coincidences of history. Now, you sometimes see... Uh, so the Nogai horde has its own flag. It's like a blue background with like a green dog on it uh, or a green wolf or something. And sometimes people will use that as a symbol for Nogai Khan. But he did have his own Tamga. We have coins that show what symbol he used to represent himself. And it wasn't that yet. So to me, the evidence is too great against him being related in any uh, fashion to the Nogai Horde. There's about a two-century gap in between the last mention of Nogai and his family, which is 1300, and the first appearance of the Nogai Horde, which is uh, 1460s, I think, maybe. I don't remember the exact year. I don't. I don't know that post Golden Horde uh, stuff as well. So, yeah, that is my that's my opinion on it. I don't think Nogai was ever involved with even the Manjits. So, that's that. I I know some people say otherwise, but I I just do not see there being evidence there for that. So it. It kind of always makes it kind of reminds me of like all the stuff about like people speculating on connections between the Huns and the Magyars. And I specifically mm -hmm. try to go against the grain because I'm just like I'm through with people trying to make up these conspiracy theories. <laughs> because like we don't have genetic evidence. Sorry, four hundred years is a is quite the distance and the Huns basically phase out of the picture after the after like the sixth century. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just exactly, like, you're just, you're looking at, oh, the name sounds similar. Is it Huns? Hungary? <laughs> right? You know, it's, like, using that as, and, and the fact that there was a Hungarian tradition of descent from Attila, but here's the key thing. Is that tradition extant when the Magyars first arrive in the Pannonian Basin? Or... If, is this something that, which is only emerging after, say, the Christianization of the Hungarians, the Magyars, and their uh, increased connections with European powers and the greater influence of European knowledge and ideas of kingship upon them, including the histories which mention Attila? Because then they can go, or because then, again, it's you're making yourself uh, this new ancestor. You're making this this new connection. It is a fabricated thing. It's not, if there was, if you could point to sources from the 8th century, or whenever the Magyars first appear, and they have some Magyar envoy going, ah, it is us, the descendants of the Huns returning to take our, <laughs> take our land or something, you know, but even what we do know about the arrival the Magyar history before their arrival in the Pannonian Basin and, you know, the travels from the from the Ural Mountains and, and all of that. And you look at that and go, well, what would that have to do with the Huns, though? The Huns didn't live in the Ural Mountains, as far as we know. They, you know, they seem to have passed a step south of there. Like, what? It's, yeah, it's, 
it's making the new identities and this, I think that's exactly what's happening here with No Lion and No Guy Horde. It's I I would imagine if you went to the fifteenth century No Guy Horde and asked them about No Guy Han, you'd get a bunch of people going, Who? <laughs> if, if you could speak their language and you weren't uh, you know, freaking people out because you showed up in a time machine or whatever. Uh, but but advent of uh, increased access to resources and knowledge and books and the internet and stuff, you find out that there is this figure called Nogai Hod who's very influential, very important in the, the Golden Horde, and he's a powerful nomad sort of thing. And he also happens to have the same name as your people. Why not? Where are his descendants? Sure, it's giving yourselves a, uh, an exciting ancestor kind of thing. Yeah. So that's that's my opinion on the matter. I do apologize if anyone listening feels I am insulting your family. If you happen to be a Nokai, I'm not trying to. I don't, I don't go into these things with the intention of trying to insult and pick fights. All of my opinions are formed off of what I've read from primary sources and scholarship and archaeological materials. And this is what it looks like to me. I, you know, and there, maybe there is folklore among the no guys today saying that that do say this, that do say, uh, no guy is our ancestor. We took our name from him. But how far back does this folklore go? If this can only trace back 30 years, 30 years ago, we all got access to the internet. You could Google no guy and go, oh, hey, this guy's got our name. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and then that has to be weighed against the alternative explanations, such as the fact of the... Uh, alternative linguistic origin of the word no guy or for in, that is in no guy horde uh the fact there aren't primary sources or anything which are establishing this kind of connection and just the fact that this is an incredibly common turco mongolian word it's yeah I, it's i did but dealing with this sort of thing, genealogies and folklore in the steppe, it, it's always it's always very messy. It's and because these people, there are still people identifying themselves by these ethnic appellations, the emotions run high. You know, I'm sure there are Hungarians today who will vigorously defend that they are descendants of Attila the Hun. Oh, I've encountered them. I've encountered them many times, in fact. We, we even have, I think we've even had a little, we've even played out a little bit of speculation up here in Cleveland with uh, the Hungarian Boy Scout troop. <laughs> uh, I often have to laugh at that because I'm, I'm a bit of the, I'm a, I'm a bit of my troop, my troops, I, unofficial young expert on Hungarian history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, although I haven't been there in a while, but anyways, uh, well, Jack, it's been wonderful to have you on the show, but unfortunately, I have to get ready for work. So yes, 
it's it's nine p.m. for me, so I'm just about ready for bed. I got I got an early day of more writing and researching and sending in assignments tomorrow. So, but it was again, it was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for having me on and letting me talk about uh, my work. Connection troubles notwithstanding. <laughs> well. The rest well and keep researching, keep us posted, for it is the will of blue heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care, Janusz. Take care. If you like this segment of the Mongols podcast, be sure to follow me on Twitter at YoungBards101, like our Facebook page at History with Sam J. Morgenstern, and follow us on Tumblr at GoSJM42 on Mongol, GoSJM42 Mongol History. You can also support us on Anchor or Patreon. As always, our sources are in the description, and we also have rewards for our patrons ranging from shoutouts to polls. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. And as always... Blue Heaven wills everything. <laughs>